with that, let's pray, and we'll get into Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to the end. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you uh, for this time that we have to gather uh, to worship you collectively as, uh, as your body. Uh, Lord, we ask that as we open the scriptures and we read this passage and we study uh, the last church of Laodicea, that you would, uh, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would uh, convict us from your word. I do believe that this church um, in Revelation, this, this, this one is the one that I believe we as the American church need to hear. Um, we have been given so much prosperity in our lifetime and in our location, and it's easy um, for us to grow lukewarm in our relationship with you. And so, Father, we pray that as we read this, we would first and foremost come to understand what it says and uh, what it means in the context. We ask that you would open our eyes to the things uh, historically and geographically of this location that would help uh, this, this passage of Scripture to make more sense to us. Father, we pray that you would soften our hearts, that we would hear a, a word from you, Lord, we ask that you would um, help us to grow in our dependency upon you. We pray that you would wake us up from our apathy, and may we grow passionate for you in all that we do. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know what you are, wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I saw salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would guide us now, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, we've come to the last of the seven churches. Next week, we're going to take a break. I uh, not so much a break, but we're going to go back to the foundation of Revelation. The foundation of Revelation is really the book of Daniel. Um, in order to handle chapters 4 through 19, you really have to have a good handle on Daniel. And so 
I haven't determined yet how I'm going to handle the middle of Daniel, I mean the middle of Revelation, but however I handle it, I've got to have a mastery of Daniel fresh in my mind. And so I'm like, well, if I got to study Daniel to get to master this, we're going to do it together. And uh, so we're going to go to Daniel. It's not to get out of the, the middle part of Revelation. You need to understand Daniel in order to understand Revelation. And so we're going to start next week in Daniel chapter 1. Um, and we're going to work our way through the book of Daniel in order to lay the foundation for this next section in Revelation. Um, I don't know about you, but I've, I've, I kind of was drug into Revelation. I didn't, this wasn't a book I chose to do so much. I mean, it was like, it's like, okay, I got to do it. And I found it so far very, like, surprisingly worshipful. Like, I've really enjoyed it. And so I'm kind of surprised by that. You know, I wasn't expecting that. Um, today's section with the seventh church, there... There are some familiar verses. Often these verses are sort of used out of context and not necessarily as they were intended um, within the context. And so I hope today to, to bring some clarity so that we understand contextually what was going on within this town so that we can rightly apply uh, these verses to our own life. And so we've come first to the angel of the church in Laodicea. And so on the map we... As to remind her, the bottom left there, uh, the Apostle John saw the revelation of Jesus Christ there, and he writes the book of Revelation. He first sees in chapter 1 this image of Christ that's mind-blowing, and he's told to write down what he sees. Um, he writes down what he sees of the image of Christ, and then he writes sort of a present day to the church age, and he writes these letters to the seven churches. So as you went across... Uh, you would have ended up in Ephesus, and as you followed the Roman roads around the seven churches, um, it was a natural way to deliver a letter. And so we come to our last church, Laodicea, which is, I think it's 95 miles east of Ephesus. So it's 95 miles east of Ephesus. What's important for us to see um, is these two cities. They're going to play a key part. Uh, Hierapolis to the north, six miles, and Colossae to the east, which was about 11 miles. Um, so what do we know about this town, Laodicea? It was founded in the 3rd century B.C. by a Greek uh, king who had a really hard name to say. He bought and established this town for his wife, uh, Laodice, I think is how you say her name. And that's where we get the name Laodicea. It was the chief city in the, the Lycus, I think I'm saying this right, the Lycus Valley. So within the Lycus Valley, it was the chief city of these three cities. But these three cities were, were very much grouped together. So you had Hierapolis and Col to the north and Colossae to the east. Um, this town was a wealthy city. They had gold and a lot of it. Um, extremely wealthy. Um, they, they had unique sheep in this location that had black fur that they harvested and they made clothing out of this black material that actually made them very, very famous. It was exceptionally soft material and uh, Laodicea sort of became, I should have done some more research, you know, like the Paris or New York City where, where they do like, what do you call that stuff? Like a fashion show or something where like people come out and show off their clothes and so people would travel there, and they'd buy these clothes, and 
they were super famous for this black material, this cloth, and this, the designers would come there, a very sort of cutting-edge city as far as the clothing. They were also known for some medicine that they were able to produce this sort of like powder, powdery stuff that they'd mix and it'd turn into like an ointment-ish. It's probably not an ointment-ish, but, but they could use it and they would put it on their eyes and, and it apparently would, would heal people. Um, so it was sort of this medicinal location where people traveled um, to get healing for their eyes and their ears. It, apparently they put this stuff in. I'm not endorsing this medicine. I have no idea what it was. But, but apparently people at the time, they really went there to get help. And people don't flock if it doesn't work, I guess. And so they went there. An interesting observation about this church is they, there's no persecution mentioned here. There's no wacky teachers. We don't have anything about a Jezebel or the Nicolaitans. Um, they, everything seems to be okay within their context as far as the sort of their quality of life. Um, however, this is the church that nothing good is set. This is the worst of all of the churches. I found this church to be extru- exceptionally convicting. Um, last week we looked at Philadelphia. There's no criticism. The other churches where there is criticism, there was always sort of this, I see your deeds, but, and there was a remnant or there was, there was something within even the dead church, a flicker of people that existed. So there was like a, a little bit of goodness within this bigger problem, except for the two churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, which had no criticism. This, this church, God has nothing good to say about this church. Um, he identifies himself differently. It's interesting. He says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. What a, what a weird way to identify himself. Um, in Revelation 1, verses 5 through 6, as John uh, is about to describe the revelation of Jesus Christ, he starts with this description. He says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, that's kind of the key word. We, we see faithful witness in, in this description of Jesus, of himself to this church. He says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then from there, he sort of goes into the description of Jesus. This word, amen, we, we use it all the time. Um, some churches, you know, have more vocal people, you know, but they're like, amen, preach it, brother. Like, I, you know, like, we don't get a lot of that here. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. What does that mean? Amen is sort of a leftover word from the Hebrew. It's transliterated into English. Um, it actually means truth. Um, it's an affirmation. As it, as, it is, has, as it has been said, may it be so, is another way of translating it. So it's this affirmation of truth. Um, when he describes himself as the amen, there's an allusion to the Old Testament, or maybe more than an allusion, but if you'll turn with me, if you can find Isaiah, don't be afraid of your table of contents. 
In Isaiah chapter 65, this clearly is when Jesus identifies himself as the amen, there is no question that there's a reference back to Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16. And in this whole chapter, it's fascinating. Um, As you're turning there, finding it, the first couple of verses, it begins with God sort of saying, I permitted myself to be sought by those that did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those that did not seek me. I said, here I am. Here am I. To a nation which did not call on my name. And so this whole first part of Isaiah, it's like God's like, Israel doesn't want me. I keep saying to them, here I am. I'm available to you. Here I am. It gets through. It, it gets going. And then by chapter verse 16, uh, we read, Because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my sight. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. And, and, And so that in verse 16 says, the God of truth. It literally reads, the God of amen. That God has identified himself as the God of amen, the God of truth, that he is truth. Uh, in the description back in Revelation, don't turn back to Revelation yet because we're going to work our way there. He identifies himself as the faithful and true witness. I think of John 14, 6. You can turn to John 14 as we're working our way back. We're going to stop at a couple places. So in John chapter 14, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, this is a well-known verse. Most of you probably have it memorized. The Lord's Supper, Jesus says to the disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So he identifies himself as truth. You could say he identified himself as the um, amen, that he is the faithful and true witness. In John 18, verse 37, if you want to keep turning your way there, where we find ourselves with Jesus, standing before Pilate under persecution, basically at his trial. And at the trial, Pilate said to him, verse 37 of chapter 18, he asked him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. And everyone who hears the truth hears my voice. And this is where Pilate says, what is truth? Nothing's changed in a couple thousand years. Our culture is still asking, what is truth? And Jesus says, I am the truth. I testify to the truth. And what is this truth? This truth is creation. This truth is God himself. That we read in the Gospel of John that Jesus is the image of, of the God which we can't see. If you want to know what God looks like, you look to Christ. So he says, the amen, the faithful and true witness in Revelation. Don't turn there yet. It says, the beginning of the creation of God. So we have this phrase, the beginning of the creation of God. This word beginning is, a, is an interesting word. It could be translated a bunch of different ways. It's the Greek word arche which has numerous meanings and nuances in Greek. It can mean the beginning. It can mean elementary principle. It can mean first. 
It can mean a summary. It can mean the origin. It can be the first cause. It can be ruler, authority, domain, and even corner, which I don't know how that one fits. But, but so it seems to be that what he's saying is that, that he's identifying himself as the source of creation. And if you'll turn with me over to, well, well, we're kind of in John. So if we go to John chapter 1, let's just go there. So John, the same writer, writes his gospel, and how does he start it? We all, this is one of those other ones that we all know. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has not come into being. So, he, so John begins his gospel, and he says, in the beginning. Go, go back as far as you can go in history to when the stopwatch of time began. Go to that place, and then go one notch before that. And if you go one notch before that, where our minds can't even fathom, you're going to find God. And there was a trinity. And Jesus was there. And as time began, as creation started, John says, this Jesus, he was in the beginning and all things came into being through him. Now, now if that wasn't clear, let's go to Colossians. So Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Please, everybody turn to Colossians. I, I want to hear Bible. This Colossians, we're getting to like this. Colossians is exceptionally important to this last church. If you, really, if you truly want to understand Laodicea as seen in Revelation, you have to understand Colossians, and I'll show you why. So to refresh our minds, back in Revelation, where we're at today, Jesus introduces himself as the amen, the truth, the faithful and true witness, the beginning or the source or the foundation, the one from whom all of creation flowed forth from. This was an issue in the church of Colossae. This church in Colossae, remember, it's about 11 miles east of Laodicea. These three areas are very connected to one another. The supremacy of Christ was being challenged like he is today. I don't want to judge other people in other religions. The problem is if you're a Christian and you look at the Bible, the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus is the source of all creation, that he is the one that says absolutely, without a doubt, when creation was created, Jesus did it. Colossians 1, verse 15. He is the image, speaking of Jesus, of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, for by Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. What was created apart from Jesus? Nothing. Everything that we know, see, feel, touch, imagine, things that exist that we can't see, when the Bible says that God spoke these into existence, Colossians tells us it was Jesus that was the creating agent behind it. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold Together, that's fascinating because if you go to science and you look at what's going on with the world, what's going on with our lives, 
you, it doesn't take you long to realize the second law of thermodynamics, that everything is moving from order to disorder, that at the molecular level, things that are breaking down, it's that the cells that are being held together are slowly not being held together, and eventually they stop being held together. The Bible tells us that when we die, it's because Jesus takes us home, because he stops holding us together. It's beautiful. We fight to try to be held together, amen? I'm not even talking about things start sagging more, and like, they look at pictures from like, it's easy to rip on presidents, and I start looking at myself from like 10 years ago, it's like, man, what happened? I don't feel like I look now. Yeah, it's just way. So now I want you to move down the page to chapter 2, verse 1. So Paul is writing to the church in Colossae. I need us to understand how important this truth about Jesus and his supremacy is to the context of Today's passage in Revelation, so in chapter 2, verse 1, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And for those who are at where? Ding, 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 ding. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and all those who have not personally seen my face that their hearts may be encouraged, having knit together in love, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude. I remember when we went through this, and I, I, I kind of, like I just, I'll never, you have learning moments when you're teaching. And I know I saw Dave Gold. He's somewhere in here. Oh, he went out. <laughs> but Dilute, I kind of said, oh, I've always thought that it's like, as, as like, you know, you get a, like coffee that's watered down. I like it like really strong. But that's not what Dilute means. D- Dilute is to steer off course. And so he says, I need you to know who Christ is so that when those come near you and they try to steer you away from him, and they try to steer you away from the truth, so that no one will be able to do this. No one will be able to delude you with persuasive arguments. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, So walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him, having established in your life just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceptions. Paul is worried. This is his pastoral heart. There's so much out there that's trying to lead you astray. Like seriously, there are are deceptive people in groups and organizations just this week, if I can vent to you a little bit here. So the church, we always screen our phone calls. 80 times out of, well, I don't know. I haven't done the math. Most times it's a total telemarketer. So I'm in the office. I hear the phone ring, and I hear old Frankie or whoever this guy was. And he says, I, I've been studying the Bible, and I have some questions. I'm really confused. 
And I'm hoping that somebody can call me to kind of help make sense of some of these questions I have. So I think, do I answer that call? He hung up. There was caller ID. I kind of like prayed about it for a few minutes. Like I'm really busy. The seniors' luncheon was happening. I'm going to call Frankie back. Hey, is this Frankie? Or whatever his name was, I don't remember. I'm like, what are your questions? And he's like, well, I was raised in the Catholic Church, and I've just been like, as I kind of read the Bible, there's some inconsistencies and some things that I'm really kind of struggling with. And I say, okay, we'll start talking. And so he starts talking through this stuff, and, and, and so I tried to answer him, and he wasn't listening to me. And it got to the point where I was getting kind of frustrated, like the seal gunner started to come out, and like Melanie was in the other office. She's like, who are you talking to? Because I was like, hey, man, you say you have some questions. I'm trying to answer your questions, but you keep interrupting me to tell me what you think. You seem like you got everything figured out, and you're trying to talk to me. I was probably nicer than that on the phone. <laughs> and then he keeps going, and thankfully we've been in Revelation, so some of the stuff he's hitting on, I'm like, I'm like, you're saying stuff from the Bible, but you're really confused and you got things backwards, man. And I'm trying to explain to you. And I'm thinking to myself as he's talking, I'm like, this guy doesn't sound like a Catholic. He sounds like a Jehovah's Witness. And as I start kind of plucking along, all of a sudden it comes out, he's like, I'm a Jehovah's Witness and I'm trying to witness to you. (laughs) And I thought, which I wish I said at the time was, you're a liar. You totally are lying to me. And then the phone call ended, and I'm sitting there going, there is so much out there that is trying to lead those who have followed Christ away, and it's subtle. And it's packaged in stuff that sounds really good. And so when I read Paul's words here, pleading with the church in Colossae, stay true to Christ, know your doctrine, know grace, know who Jesus is, because there's going to be all sorts of people that are going to come to you with really smooth words, and it's going to sound really good, but they're going to deceive you, and you're going to get let off course. And I'm really worried for you as a pastor. Turn with me to chapter 4. And I, I keep telling you, this, this really does apply to the church that we're in Revelation. So chapter 4, verse 13, as Paul is wrapping up Colossians, look what he writes. For I testify for him, that's back to verse 12, Epaphras who was from Colossae, but he's with Paul now. And he said, so he says, uh, where was I? Verse 13, for I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in where? Laodicea and Hierapolis. Hierapolis. So Paul is writing to Colossae. He says, this guy is with me. We're writing to you because we have a deep concern for you and for those in these other, two, these other two churches that are nearby cities that the three of you are counted sort of as one. He continues, verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, sends his greetings and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter, Colossians, is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. So when you're done reading this letter as a church, you send it to them because they need it. This letter really should be titled Colossians slash Laodiceans because it was to both of them. And then he says, 
as soon as I find my place. Verse 16, for uh, when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read the letter that is coming from Laodicea. So Paul wrote a letter also to Laodicea that was supposed to be circulated back to them. We don't have this letter. We don't know what was said. I wonder, though, if Paul was coming down on them very hard. You know, there's a missing letter from the Corinthians. We have two of the letters. The one is missing. I've also wondered if Paul got a little too fleshly in these letters, chewing them out, that God said, yeah, we're not going to, that's not of me. And so when we look at Colossians, you can go back to Revelation finally. So when Jesus starts his letter, the amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, the supremacy, the ultimately supreme God, the one who is over all, the one who created all, the one who is truth. This is who's speaking. Say this. I know your deeds. Their deeds are down in verse 17. If we skip down to verse 17, midway through, their de- or maybe verse 17 just from the beginning, the, their deeds are, because you say I am rich, I have become wealthy, I have no need of nothing, and you do not know that you are, their deeds are, they're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus has nothing good to say about them. This passage... Let me read it all the way through, verse 15. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Um, So normally we read this, and the way it's been taught by many people is that hot is really good, and cold is really bad, and Jesus would rather you be totally cold and miserable than to be lukewarm. That's not at all what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to be either really hot, that's really good, and really cold, that's really good. But to be lukewarm, that's that's miserable. I remember a few years ago, I set a coffee pot to go off at like 6 a.m. or whatever. But I got the a.m. and p.m. messed up. And so I didn't even really look at it. Like, who touches the coffee pot when it goes off? Like, you don't do that. And so I pour my nice hot cup of coffee, and it's like, Bleh! like, if you're expecting piping hot coffee, and it's like room temperature coffee. I mean, I like room temperature coffee. Like, I'm, I'm okay with coffee at any different, like, I'm. But if you're expecting hot, and it's room temperature, it's like, I just drink poison. And you just want to get it out, like, what is wrong? And then you touch the pot, and it's like, oh, I got the AM and PM messed up. And now I got to, like, now I got to wait a whole 15 minutes to get coffee. It's terrible. Or it's like, you know, Brian, who's right here. I'm just going to make up a story about Brian, because I don't know how this actually went down, but I'm going to tell him what I imagined in my head. So his hot water heater went out, and he had to change it out yesterday. And so, like, we've all been there when we're, like, turn on the, the hot water, and you're, I don't need to describe how you get in the shower, but you're getting in the shower, and it's like, it's lukewarm. 
I'm going to just hop in. You start doing all your stuff, and it's like, this isn't lukewarm. This is like, like, how long are the pipes in my house? They must be a million miles. It's, it's not getting warm, and I've only got a shampoo. My, what am I going to do? Like, there's nothing worse than being like the fifth guy in the shower when you're getting the very tail end. Like a lukewarm shower when you want a hot shower is miserable. What he's saying here is lukewarm is worthless. It's like taking a sip of spoiled milk. Now, I withheld some information about this town, like in the, my little introduction. Let me, tell, let me share some things. They would, have understand, they would have understood clearly when Jesus wrote this to them. When they read hot and cold and water and worthless or lukewarm. So what I didn't tell you is that Laodicea, in itself, they had no water. They were a, in peacetime, they were an extravagant city, but they depended on outside water sources. And so when they read this and they read about cold water, they would have looked to the east, the Colossi. Colossi was a town that year round is covered with snow. It had the best mountain spring water coming down its hillside year round. They had a a rock or concrete aqueduct that flowed from Colossae into the town of Laodicea, and that's where they got their room temperature water because it wasn't so cold by the time it got to them. When he mentions hot water, they would have looked to the north, the Hierapolis, and they had world-famous hot springs. People would go there and take these mineral baths and would go for healing. Like We have Warner Springs nearby. I know that there's the other ones, Marietta. I've never been to those. I've been to Warner Springs. There's like nothing better than going to like a hot springs where it's piping hot where you can barely get in the water. Like I love it. Like I want it scolding. And they had that. And they also had an aqueduct that flew, like flowed from Hierapolis down to Laodicea. But archaeologists, when they've uncovered Laodicea, they've seen in their pipes that all, like... All of the pipes were bad. They were all calcified, and, and, and clearly the water was basically unusable to them. Like even the water they piped in, it was worthless water. And so when Jesus writes this to them and they read it, they would have known exactly. They, they knew what lukewarm was. They knew what hot was, and they knew what cold was. Cold was really good. Hot was really good. Their water was garbage. And he says, I will spit you out of your mouth. And every now and again, I come upon a Greek word that makes me giggle like a little kid. This word is only used once in the whole Testament. And the translator towed it down because these words are used in church. It means to vomit. Like it means it. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Like when you're, you put it into your mouth and the, you can't even control the reaction that your body has, you just vomit it. This is bad. Why does Jesus feel so strongly? Well, he says, because you say that I am rich and I have become wealthy and I have need of nothing. Today I've been withholding all sorts of information that I had. You guys remember when we talked about gold in this town and I said they had a lot of it? That was an understatement. This town was so wealthy 
that you know how we've talked about with the previous churches, all the different earthquakes in the various locations? And after the earthquakes and the town was destroyed, Rome, they would say, you know what, for the next five years, don't pay any taxes to us. Let us come in, let us send our FEMA, let us give you financial aid, let us do all of this stuff to rebuild your town. The same thing happened in Laodicea in AD 60, 30 years prior to the time of this writing. Their town was decimated to the ground. Rome, like the other occasions, came in and said, let us help you, we'll send FEMA. Well, it wasn't FEMA, it was you know, their equivalent. They said, you don't have to pay taxes for five years, let us help you rebuild. You know what they said? Oh, don't worry about it. This is nothing. We can pay for this in the weekend. We won't even notice the money that's gone in rebuilding our town. And they, they said, thanks, but no thanks. We got everything under control. And they rebuilt the town. Uh, 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 this Roman senator and historian Tacitus, he wrote this. The Laodiceans were one of the most famous cities in all of Asia, which when nearly overthrown by an earthquake, went without any relief from us and recovered itself by its own wealth. Like that the Rome was so impressed with this town. Man, they were decimated. We offered them help. They said, no thanks. And they recovered themselves just out of like, like I, I think of Joan Crock. I don't know if you guys have heard the story about Joan Crock and there's Crock centers all over San Diego. When she was petitioned by the YMCA or whoever was the petitioner, they were like, hey, well, um, we, we envision these little like health clubs and pools and basketball courts all around San Diego County. And we want to come to you, Mrs. Croc, about a donation. And she pulls out her checkbook and she's like, well, how much? And they were like, well, a swimming pool would run 30, I don't know, don't, don't, I'm making this up, this part. <laughs> like a swimming pool would run $30,000, like an ice rink I think goes for 50 grand. And she looks at him and she's like, no, no. For all of them, in all of the town, how much? And I have no idea what the number was, but the story goes that she just, here's the check. I don't even think she was looking at her checkbook how much. She didn't even care. And this is that town. Oh, how much is this damage? Is it good today? Oh, it's good. Don't even worry about it. So this, cha- this town was completely self-sufficient. This is the American church. Totally self-sufficient. They didn't need anybody. Why, why? They don't need God. Like, sure, they were Christians, but they don't really need him. And so when he comes to them, he says, I've seen your deeds. You have nothing. You say you're rich, that you're wealthy, and you have no need of nothing. And Jesus, the true one, the amen, he says, you're in desperate need. We are so wealthy in America that we don't even... Like our idea of like what poverty is, like we don't have a clue. We have running water. It gets hot and cold. We have bathrooms. We, like we have cars. You have a microwave. You have a coffee pot. Like we can go, you have clothes, like multiple sets of clothes. Our nation is so incredible Like, we don't even understand what war is, like, on our own soil. Our military is so strong that it outnumbers and outstrengthens all of the militaries of the world combined. 
We are a people that are so spoiled and so comfortable. We're Americans. We'll take care of it. We're built Ford tough, you know, or whatever Chevy is. I don't know what they say. That's, I, I mean, I'm sure they have something. I just, I'm not, I don't really care. I just, <laughs> like, I just, like, I'm not in that fight, you know. Um, and so it's like this wealthy community. It's so easy for us to be like, well, I'm good, God. I don't, I don't, I don't need you right now. Don't, don't worry about us. Worry about those poor people in Africa or somewhere. We're good. You know, we've shared about like the church over the years, and I remember like the early days of the restart, like being utterly like dependent on God. You know, like I look at the projector. I remember when we first got a projector, it was like I did a petition to like a bunch of churches, like, hey, we need $300. Can anybody loan us some money or give us some money to like so we can get a projector? And a couple of churches, like, yeah, we'll help you out. We'll get a projector. We'll do this. I remember January, I think it was six, it was a Sunday of 2008, and there were like six of us, and we were like, let's not turn on the heat, because I don't know how much that's going to cost. And during those years of just crying out to God, but as a church grows and becomes healthy, and it's easy to drift from him. It's easy to be like, well, we got this, God. We're strong. We're healthy, fiscally sound. And the words that have always echoed to me from day one is when a a dear friend said, Gunner, never forget that this is Jesus' church. Because there's a warning here of forgetting that Jesus is at the cornerstone of all that we do here. There's a warning in misplacing our rank before God. The whole Jesus is my co-pilot, that is like, you might think you're saying something real spiritual there, but that's the absolute problem. Jesus is the pilot. We're nobodies. And so this church in Laodicea, they identified with Christ. They called themselves Christians. They were, I mean, and I believe that they were Christians. But they weren't dependent upon Christ. And it was the sin of self-sufficiency, which we need to take to heart as a church. He goes on to say, you do not know, you do not know that you are, and he lists some things. Back in verse 5, God says, I know your deeds. Their sin is that they don't know, that they, their ability to self identifying to reflect upon and to see where they stood with like they were totally blind to, to how in trouble they were he says you don't even you don't even know you think you're fine you don't think you need my help but i'm telling you the amen the true one the god of creation when i audit your church you're wretched you're miserable poor blind and naked And then we see this mercy of God, this beauty. I advise you to buy from me gold. They had all the gold in the world. He says, you're shopping at the wrong exchange. (laughs) Buy gold from me. Refined by fire so that you may become rich. 
And don't use this, don't twist this to make this like the prosperity gospel, like, oh, God wants us all to be, this is spiritual riches. Don't distort this. Don't don't be one that deludes this. He says, come to me, buy gold for me. Find true riches. And white garments, what were they known for? Black garments. Buy white garments. They were the New York City. They had all the finest designers coming there for their black garments. But Jesus says, buy white garments. Clothe yourself in my righteousness. So, so that you may clothe yourself, that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. What else were they famous for? The eye medicine, remember that? And Jesus says, and eye solve to anoint your eyes. They were, they were known for their eye medicine. He said, you guys, your clothing is all wrong. Your riches are all wrong. Your medicine is all wrong. Come to me for true riches, Come to me for true clothing. Come to me for true anointing of the eyes so that you can see clearly. I think of this old guy. I think it's in the Gospel of John. I should have looked it up beforehand, but it's like, I just love the guy that was like healed. And he's drugged before the court, blind from birth. And they're like, tell us what you said. He's like, I don't know, guys. All I know is I was blind and now I can see. And that guy did it. (laughs) I love it. And Jesus is like, just come back to this. It's beautiful. And he says, those who am I love. See, see this is God's mercy. He, he has nothing good to say about them, but I believe that they're believers. And God says, I love you. And, and those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. <laughs> like you don't, you don't go out to the park and discipline other people's children. You're not supposed to, at least, I don't think. But I, like, <laughs> I've been thinking about this. And I, like, so there was a, we went to a free hockey game on Monday night up in Anaheim. I had eight free tickets, so I took all the family. It was like Anna's birthday gift to me. I'm like, it's a delayed gift. You've got to go to a hockey game. She hates hockey. Like, she hates like, doesn't, like. And then they all, like, she's like, can I bring a book? I'm like, I didn't have to pay. You can bring a book. Do whatever. Like, I don't, like. And so at some point, like, everybody left. And it's like me and Grace in our row of eight seats. And there's this little boy who's like not just eating his popcorn. It turns into like he's throwing popcorn and it's going like everywhere. I did the <laughs> popcorn. It's like going down our shirt. And I like, well, I'm like, hey, kid, I don't care that you're throwing popcorn. Just keep it off me and my daughter. And we're like, and I'm like, I sure hope his dad's not a big old like guy. That's <laughs> like, what? But to be corrected, to be disciplined by the Lord, that means you're his child. It's good to be convicted by God. To have the conviction of spirit means that you have the spirit of God within you. It's a beautiful thing. Don't resist it. And he says, be zealous and repent. So it's like repent of your sin. God convicts you, confess it. He's faithful and just to to make us righteous, to put on these white clothes. There's this this passion, this zealousness that I I think when I think of this church and I think of the American church, there's a whole lot of apathy, which I think is lukewarm. It's like, care about, come on. Jesus did a lot. One of the things passionate that I I forgot to mention earlier, or maybe I withheld it, I don't know. This word is killing me. Hierapolis. Hierapolis. Philip, the evangelist from Acts, tradition holds that he made his way there and he evangelized the city. In fact, if you go there today, I've been told that you can find his, his, the, where he was martyred there 
and they have his like tomb there, but apparently they've excavated his bones and his family bones and they moved him. And so they would have known like passion. They, they had this rich history. This is only 30 years after. So Jesus says, repent. Get passionate, guys. He goes on, we're not, verse 20. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and he will and dine with him and he with me. And he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on the throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So first we see this, I stand at the door and knock. This is another one of those like misused verses, although the application is true. Like, we, like you hear evangelists saying, behold, Jesus is the door knocking. Come to him, respond. This isn't written to unbelievers. This is written to the church. This is written to those who have responded. And to think that as a believer, you can put Jesus outside. Like this is super convinced. I think of our church. Like if we lock the doors, and even if you don't have a key, if you don't have a key, you're not getting into the inside. Well, I should, that's not a challenge because you, I could get in. But the idea is that Jesus outside, hey guys, I want to be a part of your church. I want to come in. In fact, there was some famous artist, I don't know his name from long ago, he tried to draw a picture of this and there was no doorknob on the doorknob and somebody said, hey, there's a problem with that painting because there's no doorknob. And he said, yeah, this is a door that the knob is on the inside. It takes somebody from the inside to open it up. And at our church, you could open the door from the inside and allow Jesus in. And so this is written to believers that have kicked Jesus out of his life, which is terrifying. And I think that there's a lot of Christians who are carnal Christians that have kicked Jesus to the curb. And Jesus is saying to these believers, his followers is saying, I'm knocking at the door. Please let me into your life. I am the amen, the true, the righteous one, the faithful one, the one who created all things. I want to be in your life. I want you to be dependent upon me. And if you open the door and you let me in, we're going to have a meal together. And this word meal, this gives me goosebumps. This is like a meal. There are different words for meals. And this was a word that sort of was the idea of a meal at the end of the day or even more so like at the end of the week where you kind of kick off your shoes and it's real laid back and it's super relaxed. And for me and my family, this is Sunday nights, we have waffle nights. And if you're ever invited over to our house on a waffle night, there's a couple things that you need to know. We may or may not be in our actual clothes. Like I might be in my pajamas after I ate my waffle, I may or may not stay out and hang out with you. Like, I might just go to sleep. There's been more than one waffle night where somebody came to our house. Like, I'm sorry, guys, I'm going to go lay down. Have a good meal. Enjoy your rest of your week. <laughs> and I'm in there, you know, snoring away. And, uh, but there's like this intimacy. Like, for you to come over on waffle night and for me to be comfortable enough to be eating dinner with you in my pajamas and to say, like, just eat your waffle and you know what? I'm really tired because it's Sunday night and I need to go get some sleep. So enjoy yourself. I'm not kicking you out. But just if you hear snoring, everything's okay. Don't have to come wake me up. Just let me be. Enjoy yourself. See you later. And he says, I'll dine with him. And he who overcomes, the one who repents, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne. (laughs) It's probably totally blasphemy, but I have the image of sitting on Santa Claus's lap, you know, like... Getting your picture taken. He's up in my throne. I've sat down. The work is done. And I'll invite you to come sit with me on my throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Allow Jesus to be supreme in your life. We as a church need to keep Jesus supreme in our life. And I think that we do this by going through books of the Bible, allowing the Word of God to speak because it's Him speaking. And of course, I cover things that I'm not comfortable with, but I'm not God. And so I trust Him to speak to us through this time of preaching and going through His Word. So when I look at this passage, Jesus is knocking. Where is he in our life as a church? Is he in the midst of our church? I sure want him to be. I think this requires him being in each of our lives individually. And if you have not received Christ as your Savior, I would encourage you to do that. It's, it's believing in him, trusting in him, allowing him into your heart, allowing him to sort of clean up shop in your life. We need to repent of our self-righteousness. And we need to grow in our dependency upon him. Think of that song, Lord, I need you. I don't know the rest of the words, but it's like, whoa, I need you. Lord, I need you. Oh, that's the only part I need. I need him. I first heard that song driving to do a funeral for an infant, a brand new baby that was born, and it came on, and I was just in tears, like, Lord, I need you. It's like, Lord, we need you. And everything, we need you. And we need to change our apathy to passion. I think of uh, Matthew West's song, The Motions, because I'm not going to sing I'm going to try not to sing it, because I don't want to go through the motions. I don't want to go one more day without your all-consuming passion inside of me. I don't want to spend my whole life asking, what if I had given everything instead of just going through the motions? This, Laodicea, this church of Laodicea was just going through the motions. My prayer is that we as a church would get passionate, that we as individuals would get passionate for serving him, and I'm thankful that we are. I've always been asked to remind you that there's prayer after the service, that they come up and they pray. If you need prayer for something, come forward after the service and pray. I heard that Glenn yells at you guys every Sunday after church, and I just want to like encourage you. He doesn't need to yell at you. He won't yell at you. He just wants to pray for you. And, um, and with that, let's close. Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, this church at Laodicea, it is convicting. Whether we like to admit it or not, or whether we realize it or not, you have blessed us so much financially with the amenities of our life that we are a very comfortable people. We pride ourselves as Americans on self-sufficiency. And this cuts against all that the Bible says about following Christ. And so, Father, in our Americanness, we ask that you would help us to rewrite our coding with you, that you would force us, help us, lead us, guide us, wake us up, to the reality of who you are and that you want to be in our lives in your proper place. And so, Father, we humble ourselves before you and we ask, Lord, that you would lead us, that you would guide us, that you would show us areas in our life um, that we're sort of keeping from you, that we're just enjoying on our own. Lord, may you expose these areas. May we be clothed in your righteousness. May we truly know and love um, the riches that you offer us. 
Father, we need you. We ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.